0: There's nothing more um, useless than any version of religion that can't take away sins. Now, Jesus came and paid the penalty for sin once for all, and His sacrifice, His blood sacrifice, does take away sins. So, therefore, Christianity has a unique and exclusive message. Where should we start? How about with Cindy? Would you like to look up Numbers 28, 3? And Steve, Hebrews 10, and verse 4. Hebrews 10, and verse 4. Okay, uh, yeah, Numbers 28, 3. Continual. That's the idea. It had to be done over and over again, showing that it didn't actually remove sins. In Hebrews 10:4, for it is impossible for the blood
1: of bulls and goats to take away sins.
0: All right, there it is. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we used to sing a little chorus: What can take away my sin? was the answer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, nowadays, we don't hear about the blood atonement very often, if it's ever mentioned at all. I uh, Did anybody see the Ladies' Home Journal? You didn't get yours? Well, there's a Rick Warden article in the Ladies' Home Journal, the latest one. And I made a PDF of it in... One of the things, I was Ryan and I were looking over yesterday. He was here and we, I was showing it to him. And Ryan noticed one of the things he said in there. Basically, the article is you got to love yourself, accept yourself, forgive yourself, and believe in yourself. Right? And the reason you should believe in yourself is because God believes in you. I kid you not. That's what it says. God believes in you. Well, I didn't know I was the object of God's faith. I think Rick Warren's got it backwards. We're supposed to believe in God. I don't believe in me. Okay?
2: (laughs) When I was a general in the devil's army, in other words, God believed in me.
0: Yeah, evidently. I
2: mean, you know, that's pretty good.
0: Well, anyhow, one of the things (laughs) he. God believed you were I got going saved, to, I got saved God I be...
2: believed in Jesus Christ as my Savior. God believed I got you were. Saved and I believed in Him, and He didn't believe in me. No, He believed you were going to hell, <laughs> right? I he believed was, and I knew I was going to hell. <laughs> I was a child of
0: hell. Anyhow, uh, He says in there, God doesn't expect you to be perfect. <laughs> and so, Ryan saw that, and He said, no, that's false, because Jesus said, be perfect. See, what you're doing is removing the sting of the law, so that people don't see their need if God doesn't expect me to be perfect and He just wants me to accept myself, why would I think I needed a blood atonement? Amen. Amen. But if God requires perfection, that one transgression is enough to condemn us to hell, Amen. then it's pretty obvious that I need a blood atonement, that something has to take away my sin. And so when you take away people's consciousness of sin, you take away their need for the gospel in their hearts and minds, and then you create this sort of a feel good religion where everybody's okay.
1: More people into their church lowered
0: the bar. Well, the what did the Laodicean church uh I said in my article they had one attribute, it was high self esteem. If right. <laughs> you call that I say that facetiously. But what did the Laodicean church say about themselves? I am rich and I'm in need of nothing. And you know not that you're naked, blind, and whatever, wretched. Wretched, Yeah, Yeah, wretched. Okay, so the big danger is self-deception. And the tendency is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But that's why we need this idea. Now, in the Old Testament, then, as we've been discussing, they had this sacrifice going on continually continually those people understood that there was a sin problem and something needed to be done with it. They visually saw all this blood being shed. And so, this was very good news that Jesus paid the price once for all. So, that's verse 12. Let's look at it. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Amen. What's the significance that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God.
2: He isn't on the cross anymore.
0: Alright, he's, he's raised from the dead. It's a, it's a finished work. Tim. Anyone who is not God for not sit in God's presence. That's true. So he being God can be in the very presence of God. He's been with God. Did you
1: say that the right had
0: some significance? Yes, the right hand meant the place of authority and power. Yeah, I'm going to preach on that. The goats go to the left, the sheep to the right in the judgment in Matthew 18. <coughs> That's today's sermon, as a matter of fact, the sheep and the goat judgment. Um, and But the right hand uh, of the majesty on high would be in the place of authority, power, and dominion. And so, the early church made the claim over and over again that Jesus was indeed reigning from the right hand of the Father in heaven, and that He's going to be returning again. Alright? Now, uh, let's look at that. As a matter of fact, it was preached on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Sam, could you look up Acts 2, 33 and 34, and Norma, Romans eight thirty-four, and Linda, Colossians 3 and verse 1. Colossians 3 and verse 1. was Rick Warren. The significance is that here is the fellow who is considered the next Billy Graham. They're saying that already, that he, that he is going to be the leading evangelical in America once Billy Graham passes from the seat of history. Oh yeah, very much so. And so if you have someone who is the number one spokesperson for our entire movement teaching Stuff that is so foreign from the gospel, it just is very alarming about the future of evangelicalism in America. I can't, I mean, Billy Graham, there, there's things to be concerned about, but for the, I don't think I ever saw him write in a ladies' home journal that we need to believe in ourselves.
1: <laughs>
0: it wasn't that bad. No, it, it never comes to that. It never even comes to that. His
2: decision
0: theology? Well, no, not his. Billy Graham, you're talking about the Bible. Oh, yeah. Okay, as you know, I don't agree with decision theology, but at least I have some respect if it's presented at least with the content of the gospel. Billy Graham was certainly decision theology. His whole motto was multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. As I pointed out in an article I wrote, that's totally misusing Joel because... It isn't that the people, the sinners are, that God's in the valley and sinners decide, are deciding if God's okay or not. In Joel, the sinners are in the valley, God is the judge, and he's deciding whether he's going to send them to hell or not. So it's a total role reversal to put God in the, being judge, and the sinner making the judgment. But even at that, you, you know, when I wrote that article, I got an email from a personal friend of Billy Graham. And I thought, oh man, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> so this guy who works for NASA in, in Florida wrote, wrote me an email saying, I see you, I didn't even mention Billy Graham, I just mentioned the, the problem with the passage in Joel, that it really is the battle, it's actually Armageddon. It's, it's Megiddo and it's all the nations in the valley and God has already issued, gone into his chambers to come back with his judgment. And so in a sense it's a scary thing because we're under the judgment of God. So I wrote the article so I'm a personal friend of Billy Graham's, and it seems like you're probably disagreeing with what he teaches. Why are you saying that? And so I wrote back, and I said, well, I appreciate the fact that Mr. Graham has, I mean, he tells people that they need a Savior, he tells people that Jesus was raised from the dead, and he tells people, you know, the, the truths of the gospel. And, I, and I'm not trying to criticize that, but I do think we need to take the Joel passage in its own context and learn from it because it gives us a better idea. So and he wrote back and it was a really, you know, amicable thing. But so you have Billy Graham's version of decision theology where at least he's telling you what why you need to make a decision and what the right one is, which is to repent and believe the gospel. But you fast forward now to the next version of this with Rick Warren, and now with his version of it, you don't even have a mention of the blood atonement. Did you see um, Todd Friel's article about this in the Twin City Christian? Todd Friel wrote a whole section on this and I recommend what Todd said. So you don't even know why you need a savior. You don't know you need a blood atonement. You don't know that you're facing the wrath of God against sin. So you're basically making a decision to be a Christian because you believe that God loved believe that God loves you, believe that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And so you're you're asked to believe things that aren't even unique to Christianity. So I'm, we're just slowly getting further and further and further away from the gospel. Yes, Sam?
1: Yesterday morning, I listened to this pastor on KKMS early morning that I mentioned to you this morning. And he put it, I think he put it as well as anybody could as to what's happening in the churches. You thought about keeping your eye, when you find the field deep night, you keep your eye on a point, which means being the gospel is canceled. And he said, because if you don't, you're going to make a mess of your people.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm a. He must grow up on a farm like I did.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, you see, when you're plowing, when you're plow, I, I'm a farm boy, and when you go out to plow a field, what the most critical uh, round that you make is the first one, because after you do that, you create a furrow, and then you just put the wheel in the furrow, okay, and then that's the way you're going to go. So if the first one's crooked, you're going to be crooked. <laughs> You can't get away from being crooked, and so what you do to make the first one straight is you pick out a tree or a fence post or something that doesn't move, and you keep your eye on that. If you look back, if you look back like this, you're just going to be gone. So you, you take that tree and you don't deviate from it, and when you get there, you got a straight furrow. That's that's what he was talking about. I heard a story about that one time a farmer was doing that, and he he saw he saw a spot out in the horizon, so he kept his eye on it. And he was following it. When he got closer, he realized it was a cow. (laughs) He was following a cow and he looked back and he got all over the place. Anyhow, um, that's true. We have to have a clear uh, understanding of the Gospel so that we don't deviate from that. Otherwise, we're, we're going to be all over the place. We don't have a sure word of prophecy as it says in the Bible. So, then, as long as we're talking about this, I went to Ginny Steinkamp's funeral. with Diane and I went um, Friday. And I had her drive so I could read a heresy book that I need to study for my, for my next article. What did I say about it, Diane? Remember? <laughs> Dribble? <laughs> I said, this book is so bad it makes Rick Warren look good. It was by a guy named Brian McLaren, who's the founder of the Emerging Church. And it basically is saying you can't know anything, you can't believe anything, there's plenty of other ways to God besides Christianity. There's seven different Jesuses that he's known, and he's not sure which is the right one. It's terrible. Terrible. And this is being promoted as what the youth, it's published by this Youth Specialties. Um, they have their signing on this. If this is what our youth is getting, we're, are getting, we're in big trouble. Because it's nothing but drivel. That's what I call it, drivel. Okay, so we got a big problem here. We need to get back to the gospel. Talking about that, let's uh, see about what the Bible says. Acts 2
1: 33 and 34. <clears throat> Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has yes, poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it is not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, "The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet."
0: Amen. That was Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching that Jesus ascended into heaven, that he at the right hand of God, that that was a fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm one ten, and that therefore Jesus was ruling on the throne of David. Now in heaven, later he'll return to literally rule on the throne of David. Okay? That's the claim of the early church. And because the Jews were saying, well, if Jesus was the Messiah, isn't he supposed to rule on the throne of David? And, and the, Peter says he's ruling in heaven at the right hand of God, and he's gonna come back at this time of the restoration of the kingdom. Okay, Acts 834. Okay, so Romans 8 says that not only is Jesus at the right hand of God, that what He's doing there is interceding for us. That's very good news. Colossians 3 and verse 1. Linda?
3: Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts
0: on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Okay. There we go. And that's, not, that's just three examples. There are many of them. Psalm 110 is the most quoted messianic psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted more often than any other messianic passage, Psalm 110, by the, by the New Testament writers. And the reason was it was absolutely essential to establish that Jesus indeed was in this place of authority and power at the right hand of God. I was going to quote from this scholar, uh, William Lane. It says earlier, earlier the writer associated Jesus' session with his active ministry of intercession on behalf of those who approach God through him. Hebrews 7.25 The session at the right hand puts Christ in a position where he may provide assistance to his people without having to offer sacrifices. The allusion to Psalm 110 and verse 1 in verses 12 and 13 insists on the established firmness of his position. For the future he has only to wait for the complete subjugation of every power that resists the graces, redemptive purposes of God. Jesus' place in the presence of God enables him to exercise in heaven the ministry of the new covenant. This is the basis of the assurance extended to the community that they now possess full access to God. So why do we need to know that Jesus bodily ascended and is seated at the right hand of God? Because there's assurance that we have access to God that he's praying for us, that he's interceding for us, and that his blood has washed away our sins. So it's very much good news indeed. And there's a reason why it's so often repeated. Now, he talked about this subjugation of his enemies. That's verse 13. Saying, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Alright, let's talk about this one. There's more than one version of this out there. So, what do we believe? How will it happen that Jesus' enemies will be made a footstool for his feet? Well, let me say what that means, though. Being a foot, in the, in the uh, uh, ancient world, and this is often mentioned in the Old Testament, that a picture of military victory would be when the, the general had his foot on the neck of the opposing General or whoever they're fighting. So, when you, if you trodden underfoot your enemies, that means you defeated them. So, it's a figure of speech meaning having defeated the enemies. So, knowing that it means having defeated the enemies, what, how will it happen that one day the enemies of Jesus Christ will be trod under His feet? When He comes in judgment, right? Is this going to happen at, starting at the Battle of Armageddon? When Jesus comes; the enemies are all gathered to destroy Israel, and Jesus comes, according to Revelation, a white war horse, war stallion, to destroy his enemies. Well, there's another. That's how I believe. All right. Because
2: the earth is footstool too. Yep. And he jewels on the apple of his so the whole earth is under his.
0: Right. So he, the Jesus himself, with the armies of heaven, are going to destroy his enemies. Right. Well, there's another idea out there that's very popular called Dominion Theology. And there's a book that I have in my heresy library called Held in the Heavens Until, written by a guy named Earl Polk. And his claim is that the church has to subjugate Christ's enemies. And that Jesus can't return. In other words, Jesus is stuck in heaven until the church takes dominion over the world. And this is called dominion theology. And so, until we get out there and do our job and subjugate all the enemies of God to Christ, he can't return. It'll never happen. It won't
2: happen, and he
0: won't be back. It'll never happen. Is that what you said, Brian? <laughs> you might as well say Christ is not going to return then. Yes? I'm not. I 'm not sure what his eschatology is, but this whole movement out there in Colorado Springs you find
1: very politically
0: involved. right, yes. the Colorado Springs is sort of like the evangelical Mecca now, and there's a guy out there named C. Peter Wagner who is the super hyper apostle over all other apostles and prophets, and that movement's very much associated with this Dominion idea, and we're going to subjugate the earth so um I'm sorry, but I don't believe the church is going to subjugate all the enemies of God. I think God's going to do it Himself. Amen.
2: Well,
1: when you see when you see people like uh, like uh, Doctor like D. James Kennedy, who are real involved in political type things, would would they fall under that dominion theology? N-
0: not necessarily. Um, there's more than one reason to be involved politically. Somebody can. Believe that we ought to be as much salt and light as we can and we ought to restrain evil. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a very good idea. But another, let me throw out some more terms. Have you, have you heard of postmillennialism? Alright. That would be a, this, another version of, of uh, dominion theology. Postmillennialism says that the church is going to create on the earth in history before the return of Christ a golden age of Christianity in which the nations of the earth are ruled by Christians. The laws of the various nations reflect the Ten Commandments and Christian virtues. And though they don't claim that everybody will become a Christian, they claim that everybody who's not a Christian will willingly submit to the Christian rules and leadership of the world. And that after, maybe not necessarily a literal thousand years, but after a period of this golden age of Christian rule over planet Earth, then Christ will return. That's postmillennialism. Charles Finney believed that. And it was very popular in the 19th century. They do? Who else is postmillennial now that we know? And some people say Spruill is. I don't know if he's postmillennial or. I know he's preterist. Anyhow. Why don't I believe that? It's just, for one thing, just read history. What's happened when Christians have gained total power over a government? They kill everybody. Uh, Read the story of um, England after the Reformation. If you want to read interesting history, they had these series of wars of whether the Catholics uh, or Protestants were going to rule England. And whoever came into power went on a rampage to kill everybody else. And it happened over and over again. Bloody Mary was part of this. That's where we get the term Bloody Mary. She killed, I don't know how many thousands, just killed all these people. Um, I'm not saying Christians shouldn't try to to do what they can to be, you know, to, to use our citizenship right. And I'm not even against Christians running for public office, but the idea that you're going to force sinners to live as Christians, I don't think, is the Great Commission. That's a good question. Where do they get that idea? Probably from this verse that we're reading here. Waiting. F- It says here, waiting from that time onward until His enemies made a footstool for His feet. So Jesus is waiting, so He's obviously not going to do it. That's what they would say.
2: God says only I can take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Only He can do it. How can we go out there and take uh, hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh? What dominion theology can do that? God said only I, I am who am, can do it. You know, where do we think we can do it? I can't do a thing. No, i on that street, people think, oh, you're brave. I'm terrified. And I have to beg the Lord to help me to give me the strength to do it. Who do these clowns think they are? In the Colorado, tease me off because you, you have to sign a document not to give the gospel. What kind of Christians are they down there? Well, you don't dare, what do they call that uh, when you talk to other religions? they got a name for that uh, Prop? Don't you, you signed to not prop? you imagine the great prophets and the great evangelists signing an order not, or pastor signing an order not to proselytize here at 24th and Nicola on the street?
0: We're actually, we're going to go out this summer and do a lot yeah. of proselytizing.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So anyhow, <laughs> um, just so you're aware theologically of what some of the issues are out there, and, and there are some very brilliant people who believe this, the Christian Reconstructionist movement with Gary North, Gary DeMar, um, who they get their ideas of this rush Dooney. There, there are some very serious people who believe that we're going to take dominion in history. And they would see, for instance, Constantine and the Roman Empire as a good example of how it could happen. North Gary North says that. All right. Well, that's not what I believe. Uh, Pete, Psalm 110 and verse 1. Tyler, Daniel 244 Camp One Corinthians fifteen twenty five. We're going to talk about this uh, passage from. Well, first we're going to read Psalm one ten and verse one. That's where this prophecy comes from.
3: Well, they're looking that up. I have a question, you know, on that dominion thing. People get sucked in because we've been talking. You know, I want to know be able to discern so that I don't get sucked in because suddenly at times good will become bad, bad good. So I don't want to be sucked in. But in, even on the dominion thing, people get sucked in without even realizing it because it isn't bad to pray for your city or your block or your neighbor. And yet, so when you even talk to somebody about that, they're like, well, what's wrong with you? Just pray for your neighborhood. And it's hard to explain to them because they get offended because they are they get sucked in doing maybe what's right as far as praying for, but they then the theology just comes right along with it.
0: Yeah, well, see, this became very popular in the 80s. And it's interesting how our eschatology changes with what's in the newspaper. See, in the 70s, when when we had Jimmy Carter and General Malaise, remember that? Everything was so bad and hopeless and bleak. We had the late great planet Earth was very popular, okay? And then in the 80s, we had Reagan and Reaganomics, and people thought things were going to be more Christian, and so then this dominion theology came in, and we're going to be able to Christianize the world. I think we need to go to the Bible and get a solid theology. Now, what does the Bible say about the end of the age? Does it say things are going to get better and better? No, it says evil men and apostles will, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, I, I think we just got to go by the Bible and not get sidetracked because we have a few breakthroughs politically. Amen. Yes.
1: I'm, I'm guessing that there's probably somebody here that's wondering well, you know, if these people believe this and these people believe that, how do we know what to believe? Because they all go to the Bible. Uh, one of these days, I don't think it would be a good idea for you to do a sermon on sound and doctrine, because a lot of people that I've talked to say that well, you know, it could be this, that could be an interpretation, and they build their theologies on what could be and not historical.
0: But what is? Yeah, right. Mike, you had something to say?
1: Yeah. Well, Jesus says that uh, you know you can't love God and love the world. And, uh, it also talks about that we don't uh, we don't war with flesh and blood, but with powers and, powers yeah. and you know the spirit of God, and uh, so the, the structure has been set up already, and we're we're to look at ourselves as citizens of heaven, and and not. Uh, be focused on this world of be looking like Abraham to a heavenly
0: Amen. <laughs> and, uh, a different future. that reminds me of what you're saying there, Mike. That didn't Jesus say, "My kingdom is not of this Amen. world." Amen. And there's there's material in the in the Gospels warning us about that that we're not going to the kingdom of God doesn't come through taking up the sword and telling somebody like Charlemagne, you know, are you ready to be a Christian? Uh, I guess so, yes. <laughs> I always wanted to be one. <laughs> yes, Cindy.
3: Well, and it's in all things in life, there's a balance because we are dual citizens. We are citizens of this country and we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. So we have responsibilities not only to the Lord, but to our position here. And if Christians would totally have scarred on their responsibility to this kingdom, it would be totally destroyed. And they, it would be gone. Because we are the salt. So we have to do both. We have to keep our focus on heaven and the people of Christ and to the heavenly kingdom. But we have to we have to take care of our responsibilities here.
0: Yes, I, I totally agree. And I think that there, different Christians have, uh, as far as that are like us and believe in premillennial, you know, in the, in the rapture and so on. For, for instance, I had a conversation with Dave Hunt. He's pretty adamant that we you can't even run for public office as a Christian. And I don't, ag- I don't agree with that. But he's from the Plymouth Brethren, and they're kind of more withdrawn. Uh, I think that Christians are, Paul exercised his citizenship privileges when he appealed to Rome. Amen. Because he was a Roman citizen. And I think we can, can and should exercise our citizenship pri- privileges as they're granted in the country we're in. And, and, uh, <clears throat> vote and get involved as much as we can, but not thinking that somehow that's gonna, that's our mission in and of itself. Because it's just a temporary thing. No, but you can make hell on earth. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it doesn't take
1: much work either. You know? <laughs> I guess Bob the thing is straight up, you know, earth is pretty much hell. And and we're just gonna get through it. But we still need to be good stewards of what's been given to us and, and, and things that can be given right. to our lives, whether it's the, you know, it's it's the earthly things or, or that, but it, Right. Yeah, I, just, I can't see that. Like, I'm just thinking of what he has said. That.
0: Yeah. Okay, you got your verse there? Psalm 110, verse 1.
1: Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet.
0: It says, Until I, until I make, is that what it says? Mm. So that would be God's going to it. Good. Alright. Remember Jesus quoted that when He said, who was David's Lord? And they couldn't answer Him? Because there's a, there's a passage about the deity of Christ. Daniel 2.44 In the time of those kings, the God of heaven
1: will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. He will crush all those kingdoms and make it to men.
0: So there it has God establishing His kingdom that will destroy all other ones. That God Himself is going to do that. And then 1 Corinthians 15.25 Camp. So, He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. So, there's two ways that will happen. His enemies can be reconciled to Him through conversion, right? Amen. Ministry of reconciliation. Or, they can remain in their stubbornness and wait until they're forced to acknowledge His Lordship when it's too late.
2: Amen.
0: When they're forcibly subjugated. Yeah well, moving on, Hebrews 10:14. Now look at this. <laughs> this is quite a passage. We'll probably spend the rest of the time talking about this. "For by what offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." <clears throat> so this is a very strong statement about what God has done for His people. And this takes this offering of Jesus Christ that we've been studying in Hebrews and says to us that this offering has not just temporarily removed sins, not just covered sins, not just made for today ceremonial cleanliness, but has perfected forever those who are sanctified. In the the Greek, are sanctified. There is a present... Participle. And it's definitive, and, um, and it's qualifying the people then to, for fellowship with God. So all people whose sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus are purged of their sins. It doesn't mean we're per- perfected totally in this life, but we'll talk about that. But that we are therefore made fit. To, for fellowship with God. Amen. Because that was the thing that kept going away in the Old Testament. If you do a study sometime in the book of Leviticus, you really get an idea of how hard it was to be a believer Amen. under the Old Covenant. Amen. Because just ordinary life took away your cle- cle- cleanness. Amen. They, they have a whole list of things that could make you unclean. A nocturnal emission. You're unclean something happens you're unclean this happens you're unclean you come in contact with a dead body you're unclean so all of life was making you unclean if you were a Jew in the under the old covenant amen and it wasn't unclean wasn't necessarily the same idea as sinful it meant unclean in the sense of at that stage not being fit to go into God's presence to worship or to do your priestly duty or whatever it was and so, because they were continually having this consciousness of not being fit to fellowship with God, unless things they had to do things, they had to make certain offerings, and just read Deuteronomy, or, excuse me, Leviticus. They understood this. And so, if you were Jewish and you'd been under the old covenant and been part of all these sacrifices, and you got this epistle to Hebrews handed to you, and somebody says that for the one offering can perfect you forever and that you will be fit forever to fellowship with God, would that be good news? (laughs) Jump
2: for joy.
0: I'm telling you, that would be good news. Kathy. Um, Anyhow, so this perfected forever, those who are sanctified, gives us an understanding of just how good this news is and why it would be so horrible to reject that once-for-all offering and go try to do something else. And here I'm going to read Lane again. The stress in verse 14, however, falls on the clause. He, he, he translates it this way. He decisively purged forever. He decisively purged forever. Amen. Where the perfect tense of the verb, and then it gives the Greek word, in combination with the temporal expression, emphasizes the permanent result of Christ's offering. So we have... A perfect tense is something that happened at a point in time and then continues on in its effect after that time. So having purged or having perfected through the one offering from then on, we're continually being made clean and made fit to come into God's presence. We can go to the throne of grace without feeling like we're too defiled to go there. Amen. Alright? And that we, we can come into God's presence in worship not feeling like we're too defiled, because He perfected us forever. Amen. And that is, the further we get away from that, the further we're getting away from biblical Christianity, and all religious systems are different in this. And the reason being is that if you're going to devise a religion and you're a religious ruler or leader, why give somebody something so they don't need you anymore? You gotta string them along. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta keep coming back. And, you know, you may have done a mortal sin since the last time you went to Mass. That's right. Right? And you, and you, may have, uh, done this or done that and you have to keep coming back and then you have to try to get cleansed again. You gotta come back, you gotta come back. And here, Jesus does it once for all. And He purges us. And as religious leaders then, we don't have any, um, way to dangle people over the pit and make them jump through our hoops because they've already received from Christ everything that they need. Amen. So, there you go. Okay, um, Dave, Romans 15 and verse 16, and Tim, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. Then I'm going to ask us a question. Be thinking about why they looked us up. If we are sanctified, according to this passage, we're on Hebrews 10, 14, those who are sanctified... If that's true, how is it that we still need to be sanctified? Alright, get your mind going. Okay, Dave, Romans fifteen sixteen. To be a minister of
1: Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy
0: Spirit. Yeah, Paul uses an analogy as if he were a priest and his offering is the Gentiles coming to God in faith and, and they're being offered to God. An interesting uh, analogy that Paul uses there for his ministry. And then 1 Corinthians 1-2. To
1: the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, um...
0: Alright, that verse right there underscores the question I asked. Read it again. Hold on, right there. The, to those sanctified, that's already happened, right? Call to be holy is what? Future. Present and future. And so here we have two tenses in one verse. You're sanctified, that's why. A, what, what's a saint? Sain. saint. He's
2: Christ, we don't know sin. We're sanctified, we're. We got Christ's righteousness for right. a child of the King. Literally, a, a Catholic saying: you have to have three. <laughs> and you know, can you pray the saints, when you get born again? I knew you were going to say that. And you're also a priest, so there they got the priest and the saint. You're going, and that's the benefit of being born again. You're a priest and a saint. Amen. <laughs>
0: Good, Dan. <laughs> All right. So um, you don't have to be made a saint by some big. College of Cardinals, or I don't know how they do that. But a saint is something God makes when he saves somebody. Amen. So, literally in the Greek, a saint is a sanctified one. The sanctified ones. So, to the saints that are at Corinth, and Paul was really using that term very uh, broadly, because if you read what they were like at Corinth, they were a big mess. But he called them saints because they believed in Christ. So, so and then it says call to be holy. So, How is it then that we can, having been sanctified, still be called to go out and be holy or to become sanctified? How does that work? Okay, to continue on the path. Uh, Mike? Okay. He who began a good work will complete it. Because obviously we're not perfectly holy yet, are we? Yeah, the already not yet. There's another way of describing this in theology that I found very helpful when I was in Bible college as a fairly new Christian. And they said that you distinguish between the positional and the practical. The positional would be who you are in Christ. You have legally received the righteousness of Christ imputed, put into your account. So every Christian is holy. Amen. Because if you truly know Jesus Christ, you have His righteousness, you're made suitable to fellowship with God, and you're a saint, and you're holy. Your temple but the, holy,
3: holy Spirit.
0: A temple of the Holy Spirit. However, every one of us is also called to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Amen. All right. So therefore, positionally being cleansed from sin, made holy... We have this legal position, but anyone for whom that is true will, by God's grace, also be motivated to change. In other words, we can't feel good about being unholy when we're called holy. That's right. um, and it'll grieve us when we sin, and we'll seek God's grace to change. Amen. And so that's and that isn't totally perfected until the resurrection. And those two things are both asserted to be true throughout the New Testament. And unless we have both, there's major problems. And let me just talk about what would happen is if you had one idea but not the other. You'd have a problem on either side of the equation. Let's say you have positional but no practical. Mm-hmm. In other words, let's say uh, you do what Paul—the idea of Paul aboard. Uh, Shall we continue in sin? The grace may abound. You know, I'm holy one because the blood of Jesus. So therefore, I'm going to be an antinomian. I'm going to be against the law. I'm going to do whatever I see fit. And uh, and I've talked to people to believe that. One of the first people I witnessed to after I became a Christian was my old high school buddy, and he believed that. He was living like the devil. And I went and witnessed to him, and he said, oh, I'm already a Christian. You go, you are? I I probably insulted him. (laughs) You are? He goes, yeah, once saved, always saved. I went forward when I was 12, so I'm fine. Well, why don't you go to church? Why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you witness? Why don't you give up running around with all these girls and drinking and partying and everything that you do? Well, it doesn't matter. That would be a nice thing to do, but I don't have to because I'm saved. So I was trying to suggest that there's a problem. Yes. I would, yeah, I question that too. In fact, that's what I told him. I don't, I don't think you're really born again because when you're really born again, God puts within you a hunger to change and a dissatisfaction with being the way we used to be. That is just a mark of a true Christian that there's a dissatisfaction. Not that we can't sin, but we can't sin and feel good about it. (laughs) Dave was just—you don't mind—he was just telling me a story about one of his buddies. Who's? What did your buddy think about you when you first became a Christian?
3: Uh, He thought I was
0: doing it to impress a girl. Yeah, it doesn't work anyhow. (laughs) Dave was telling me an interesting story. He became a Christian recently, and he was, uh, you know, been witnessing to his old buddies. And one of them started to see that well, maybe he really, really something really did happen. Because at first he thought he just was acting Christian to impress a girl.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you can only do that so long. If you're not really one, you'll go back to your old ways. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I would say that if you say you have the positional. But there is no evidence whatsoever of anything practical. You have reason to doubt the positional. Okay, that you really, you probably still need to be converted. Now, on the other hand, if you claim that the practical is all that's mattered and not the positional, what you what you lose is assurance of salvation. Amen. And so, if you have a system that really emphasizes, well, that's what that was the debate at the Reformation. Uh, at the Council of Trent, the, the 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 declaration was that you are not ever declared just until you actually are just. And so, in which case, you can never have assurance because you never really are just. And so, the, they called positional legal fiction. And so, that was the debate. Well, I'm saying it's both ends, that we do have positional and we do have assurance of salvation, but the practical... It's true, it's real, it's necessary for any true Christian. And that God will change us. And that if we fall short on the practical, what do we do? Go back to the Lord. Same, what can take away by sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, we you, just, you fall back on what you already know to be true. The blood of Jesus washes away sins, and you go forward.
2: But well, where we come in in Jude and James is when our brother falls, it says... Uh... You would pull them out of the fire, cover a multitude of sins because you're keeping them off from these fleshy sins not even touching their garments. He tells us to reach out because in this warfare, spiritual warfare, Satan can't touch your soul. But a lot of people, love for the Lord can grow cold. I don't mean they're not Christians. That's where we come in and encourage each other. Jude and yeah. James, to help your brother. In religion, they stamp you when you're down. In religion, because the two guys that helped me most in the Lord, don't think Satan ain't coming after you like Joe. Where do we? Got, where does it say that Satan won't come after you when we're born again? There ain't going to be a ton of heartache. Like Job, less than, a lot less do we get than him, where we help our brother. The difference with Christianity when I taught the kids was when the old dog down and I made mistakes and I fall down, you reach down and pull me out. That's what Christianity is. Just because I'm preaching Jesus Christ and out there telling how great he is doesn't mean I can't be slammed down. If Satan comes to, to, to God and says, like Job, slammed, I'm going to allow you to slam Litsky down. Good. Well, then <laughs> you people that are Christians better help me.
0: Dan, we will. And
2: pull me out.
0: <laughs> I promise you and we that's will. that's the beauty of Christianity. <laughs> we love you. The
2: guy's drowning because I see Christians out there that love the Lord, wrote books, and don't fellowship no more because they're hurting so bad. And yeah. they're believers. There's a ton of them out there. Well, that's why
0: we need to fellowship with the saints. we got to help and fellowship
2: yeah. and reach out to them. I agree. The lost, they're lost. But the wounded and the hurting Christians, we've got to be specially good to them and reach out to them because they're hurt. We hurt every day ourselves. Yeah. We need Jesus, and we need fellowship. That's why we come together, pray one for another. You know, Dan, you're talking
0: about Satan attacking Christians. Yes. I remember that reminded me of when I was first saved. The, somebody told me that I was brand new Christian. They said, "Well, okay, now you, you need to be careful now because you're a Christian. Satan's going to attack you." And I remember exactly my first response. I was, "Well, it was hard enough to come to believe in God. Now I have to believe in Satan." <laughs> <laughs> and, and and what they told me was, well, you don't you don't take our word for it. You'll find out soon enough. There's a Satan, and I did. Yes. The, the air of legalism. The the air of legalism is is the assumption that you can be perfected by some other basis than what you are saved. And Paul addresses that in Galatians when he says, "Are you so foolish? Is that you began in the spirit, you're going to be made perfect by the flesh." Okay, and there, and, there, and there are groups that I, in fact, when I was born again, it was, I was right into one of those groups that was like that. And they said, well, uh, here's how we know you're sanctified. And they give you the list to sign. And on, on the list that I was handed was you can't go to a movie theater, you can't play cards, and you can't dance. No, they left golf off. It's a good thing. If the golf would have been on there, I'd probably have to go to hell. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding.
3: <laughs>
0: but anyhow, uh, so I I looked at the list and said, well, I guess that's what you got to do. But the error of legalism is the idea that if you have a stricter list of rules than somebody else and enforce and, and those on church members, that they're somehow going to make people more into the image of Jesus Christ. But Paul calls that starting in the spirit and being perfected by the flesh. Uh, we actually walk in the Spirit. Well, they believe that giving people a strong list of rules and enforcing it will make them more sanctified or will be definitive of sanctification. But the problem with lists of rules is that it rarely has anything to do with the heart. And when Paul talks about the works of the flesh, some of those things have to do with anger and lust. There are internal things their list of rules can't touch. And the means of grace that God has, which is the Word of God, and as we gather together and admonish one another under love and good works, as we'll see here later in Hebrews 10, the prayer, fellowship, the things that God uses well, aren't just external, making people decide what kind of haircut they have to have and so forth, but it's God is interested in transforming us from the inside out. To change our hearts and our desires, because if the inside doesn't change, the outside you can only just so long. You know, it says in uh, Peter about the pig. You know, you get you get the pig all cleaned up. What happens? <laughs> Why does the pig go back in the slop? It says nature. <laughs> exactly. It's unless the inside gets a work of grace, the outside is never going to be sufficient. And so, the process of sanctification, as I believe, has to do with the means of grace being brought to bear in the lives of Christians, and that's why we do what we do. We, even here in the Sunday school class, we're admonishing one another under love and good works, by speaking of our common salvation, encouraging one another, trying to understand the scriptures together, and may the Lord help us, uh, you know, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as, some, as uh, Mike quoted. Okay, uh, the sermon today is from Matthew chapter 25. That starts at 10.30. We have a time of fellowship, and I think there's some coffee and donuts and stuff. So, God bless you.